0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Boulder Weekly is being brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at weissmanfamilydental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, June 2nd edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today we will be reading the following articles. The Technology Pipeline by Will Matsuka. Can Woman of Light Rewrite the Western Mythology by Emma Athena. Rainbow by Michael J. Casey. Meet the Future by John Lendorf. A Different Sort of Relaxation by Matt Mainpaw. Smelly Business by Will Brenza. A Safe Space to Fashion Identity by Matt Mainpaw. The Technology Pipeline. CU Boulder study could help manage increasing atmospheric CO2 levels. By Will Matsuka. Owana Luka is a self identified mad scientist. I keep a notebook with ideas next to my bed. Luka, an assistant professor of chemistry at CU Boulder, says, A little over a year ago, when Luka was teaching organic chemistry to undergraduates, she was thinking a lot about molecules that bind with carbon dioxide, CO2. I woke up one night and I had this idea, she says, to electrochemically generate a molecular material that could bind with CO2 and then quantify how well those materials were binding. After a year of experiments and computations, Luca's idea became a study that was published in the scientific journal iScience in March 2022. A binder is a molecule that attaches to another, in this case, CO2. In this study, Luca and a group of student researchers used imidazoleum-based carbenes, a specific molecule, to bind with and trap CO2 using electricity. What we found is that we can diagnose the strength of a binder by using simple electrochemical experiments, Luca says. Finding the right balance of CO2 binding strength can be a challenge, but it's important for fine-tuning a binder for specific CO2 capture conditions. Most CO2 capture technology uses strong binders to capture as much CO2 as possible, usually at point sources from industrial facilities like coal, natural gas, or ethanol plants. Mm -hmm. These binders also take a high amount of energy to detach from the CO2 after capture. Weak binders make it easier to desorb after capture, but may bind with CO2 molecules less efficiently. This study was a proof of concept that the binding strength of any electrochemically generated CO2 binder can be quantified. It's the first step toward improving carbon capture technologies that could help manage CO2 levels in the atmosphere. So it's the first break, I guess, Aziz Alhers, a chemical engineering graduate student and co-author of the study, says. So many more carbon capture projects to come. Luca is interested in studying the potential of weaker binders for direct air capture. Trying to understand how to do it from air that's not been concentrated or processed in any way, with pretty good yields and minimal energy consumption. That's kind of the ultimate goal, she says. Josh Shadle has worked at the National Renewable Energy Lab NREL, for 10 years and leads its carbon management program. He talks about how critical it is that we move quickly to develop carbon management technologies and go carbon negative. Carbon management is a huge global issue, and it's also something that we have to move very quickly on, he says. CO2 levels in the atmosphere are hovering around 420 parts per million ppm globally, the highest on record. Scientists predict that the US could have to remove two gigatons of CO2 per year by 2050 to reach net zero carbon emissions. As of November 2021, 19 direct air capture plants were capturing 0.01 million tons of CO2 per year globally. Clearly, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in this space. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, there are 27 reporting power plants and 37 reporting petroleum and natural gas systems that make up 85% of the CO2 emissions from large facilities in Colorado. In total, these 64 plants emit 34.1 million metric tons of CO2 per year. Some of these plants could be suitable for future carbon capture projects. A few in Colorado are already exploring CO2 capture technology today, the Coyote Clean Power Plant, the Lafarge wholesale c- cement plant, Sterling Ethanol, and Yuma Ethanol. While promising, these projects are still under development. There are no direct air capture plants as of yet. The State of Colorado Carbon Capture Utilization and Sequestration task force was organized to better understand opportunities and challenges for carbon management technologies that could help the state reach its greenhouse gas reduction goals. The group released a set of recommendations moving forward in February 2022 and acknowledged the infancy of direct air capture technology. Michael Turner works for the Colorado Energy Office and led the CCUS task force. Despite admitting that there is a lot of work to do to support developing future projects and research, Turner said that carbon capture could still help the state reach its goals. I'm optimistic that it could play an important role, and I think we're at a time now where we are going to want every tool at our disposal, Turner says. Even with the best technology, some sectors will be difficult to decarbonize. In those areas, carbon capture could provide a solution. Schadel says one thing he finds interesting about Luca's study is its potential to utilize renewable energy sources through electrochemistry to activate and regenerate a binder. This would let the process operate independent of fossil fuels and make the process more sustainable overall. While the big picture helps provide context for Luca's work, she is focused on developing the tools that could help someone like Schädel take their findings to the next stage. We are basic scientists. We don't make devices. We don't really fully save the world. But I think just doing your part is important in this kind of global context of everything going on in the world, Luca says. Science moves forward in very small increments. It is all about pushing boundaries, little by little, until one day you reach a breakthrough. Schädel says that there needs to be simultaneous effort to continue an innovation pipeline and deploy existing technologies. We need as many ideas funneling into this pipeline of concepts and technologies, Schädel says. Some of them will trickle up and get opportunities to scale up and integrate. Others will just be fundamental science. But this study is an example of an early-stage part of this technology pipeline. Luca and all hers have already submitted a follow-up study for publication. It's hard to not get excited, and it's hard to kind of remove yourself from it, Luca says, because it's our life. It's what we do. Send comments and questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com Can Woman of Light rewrite the Western mythology? Kali Fayardo Anstein introduces readers to a Denver they've never before seen by Emma Athena. Luz Lopez gazes into the teacup, studying the leaves and their soaking shapes. The Platte River rushes at her back and all around. Denver's chilly harvest pulses, crowds moving through the city's liquid center, illuminated in green and blue lights. It's 1933, and the 17-year-old sees three foreshadowing images inside the cup. A clam, an owl, a brick. She glances up at her client, a white woman tightly bundled, then peers back down to witness something strange, off-putting. The tea leaves seem to drift like a blizzard over golden plains until Luz saw a place she hadn't seen before. And her vision snaps to something so startling she suddenly lies, gives her client a vague answer about what she sees, what it means. Luz, protagonist of Woman of Light, Kali Fayardo ansteins debut novel, dips in and out about that which lies beyond the edges, sees scenes as they might have or could have happened at various points within the arc of five generations of Colorado. Not unlike the author herself, oscillates through time in the storytelling of Lou's becoming a woman, losing her brother, and navigating 1930s Denver as a laundress-turned law office secretary with her complex family histories in tow. The story's root curls around the last generation before contact is made with Anglo peoples in southwest Colorado. The vines of the family's DNA then reach toward Denver, slowly unfurling one generation at a time like flowers turned toward the sun. Luz arrives in the Mile High City at age 11 from Huerfano, the town where her mother landed after leaving the lost territory, the region where their indigenous ancestors tried mixing with Anglos but were cheated and brutalized. Again and again, her husband explained, no human being can possess land. Again and again, Simo de watched as new tents went up throughout the property, the canvas shacks fluttering her eyesight like the blurred edges of reality just before a person faints. Mexican sharpshooter Simo de Seá Luz's grandmother, is another strong female character, classic Fayardo Anstein. readers of the writer's short story collection Sabrina and Corina will note, who is often thrust into protection mode forced to rely upon her instincts and deep inner wisdom, part of the real intelligence the girlfriend of Luz's aunt once describes, that comes from our grit, our ability to read the world around us. It took nearly fifteen years for Friarter Anstein to publish Woman of Light, hotly anticipated after Sabrina and Corina won a 2020 American Book Award, among other accolades, and garnered glowing reviews from the powerhouse pens of Julia Alvarez and Sandra Cisneros, whom Fayardo Anstein thanks in her acknowledgment for Woman of Light. The 35-year-old author grew up in Denver, dropped out of high school, got a GED, then dropped out of her first master's program and received an MFA from the University of Wyoming. Writing this book taught me to look at our city and our space in a generational way. In a way that's textured and deals with history over a long period of time, Fayardo anstine says. I didn't just move to Denver and decide that I wanted to set stories here. I'm a person who has indigenous ancestry. My family has been here since time immemorial in some ways, and they've been in Denver proper since the 1930s. It's the backbone to my understanding of the entire world. As such, the novel's spine is a multicultural foundational Denver, a Denver that speaks many languages, a Denver that's many classes. A look at the city that I don't think many readers have ever seen before, she explains. In Luz's world, violence is around every corner, and it's the type of violence that sets Fayardo Anstein apart from what's largely dominated the concept of Western literature tales told about anglos and indians in and around the rocky mountains, mixing men with booze and rugged landscapes with horses. So much of our identity as a western space has been defined by the cowboy narrative, the myth of the stoic outlawed cowboy figure, Fiardo Anstein says. This is going to be the first time somebody is coming to the American West in a way that is not the stereotype mythology. Instead of the sensationalized Bonnie and Clyde violence that fayardo Anstein ironically inserts as a simmering backdrop to the novel, Luz's brother receives a beating that sounded like bones garbled in a sack for speaking Spanish at school. A young woman fears the things I will be forced to do in order to feed myself and Mama after her brother is murdered by police officers. Simodasea feels her husband's swampy shallows on her fingertips as he dies in her arms after a suited man arrives and gun blasts sprayed bullets across the land. Better get used to it, another of Luz's aunties advises, stitching the face of her brother after a white mob used bricks to bash his skull during a party in town. I won't make you fix him this time, but it'll serve you to learn. In effect, Fayardo-Anstine portrays the rippling, compounding effects of Anglo settlers on so-called Colorado. Between scenes bubbling with new love and hope for better futures, she forces the reader's gaze to hold on the worst of it. Luz and her steadfast Aunt Maria Josie learn, in most cases, it's best to bury the past, stomp good and hard on it, and then use the solid ground for a big step forward. For Fayardo-Anstine, the past is more elastic. The time period that frames Woman of Light, 1860s to 1930s, is a mirror for today, she says. Maria Josie, indeed, comes home with hands nicked and scratched after long hours laboring at the nearby mirror factory. As Fayardo anstein loops between decades, she doubles back to fill in plot texture, then glances forward, tantalizing what's to come. It's like the mirror's been dropped, a kaleidoscope spread of stories arranged together aesthetic and dynamic enough to conjure a quote from Joseph Conrad, which Latin American literary giant Mario Vargas Llosa once used to describe the work of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Circles, circles, innumerable circles, concentric, eccentric, a coruscating whirl of circles. Thanks to her parents, Fayardo anstein says, her childhood was steeped in books. Her mother is a writer, her father an avid reader, When I would get depressed, my dad would actually leave books outside my door, as a sort of treat, she says. And as one of seven children, reading was something I could do alone. Besides Garcia Marquez, she grew to love authors like Sylvia Plath, Khalil Gibran, and Elizabeth Bishop. Since elementary school, she's been writing stories, and when she turned 16, she started working at West Side Books in North Denver where she'd continue working off and on until age 30. Enmeshed in words, fayardo Anstein absorbed everything she could, feeling authors like Willa Cother, Toni Morrison, Catherine Ann Porter, and Alice Munro weave themselves into her craft DNA, describing the women as her literary ancestors. Writers whose style and prose have made an imprint on me. Like Monroe relies on Ontario as a vivid backdrop for her fiction, and Morrison uses configurations of space and community to impress alienation or belonging. Fayardo-Anstein digs into Denver throughout the senses. Insects chirping, factories whizzing, people gossiping, building upon the scene setting strength she exhibits throughout Sabrina and Corina. Some chapters in Woman of Light, like Women Without Men and La Llorona, could stand alone as satisfying short stories, but larger themes clearly bind the chapters. The inverted evolutionary trajectories of voice and sight throughout the female lineage, for example. While their ability to see into the edges of life strengthens over time, as the women grow farther from their pre-Anglo matriarch, the sleepy prophet of the lost territory, their voices weaken. Once, a musical sound in their throats, life in a small shared apartment in Denver, leads a growl trapped inside Luz's bedroom, inside her throat. There are times when she'd open her mouth to speak, but could only picture white moths fluttering from her lips. Early in the novel, the protagonist contemplates the rich, the doctors and lawyers, businessmen and silver tycoons, and realizes she often felt she and her people were only choking on their leftover air fayardo Anstein, by contrast, is taking a big gulp and shouting herself far and wide with Woman of Light, an energy she infuses in the pivotal scene shortly after Luz and her brother leave their mother at the Huérfano mining camp and arrive in Denver to live with their Aunt Maria Josie. The young siblings are crossing blocks, writing a map of the city into their minds when they run into one of the neighborhood's most complex characters, who points to the mountains and tells them that way will always be west, before pointing to the plains, which always run east. Then he gets them to shout in unison, This is my city! Timidly at first, with the young girl soon amassing courage, They yelled together until their voices boomed, high and arching, rattling streetcar cables and smoggy windows, soaring between stone tenements and factory tufts. This, she repeated, is ours. So, too, Fayardo-Anstein claims her voice and her words, printed on pages and now translated into languages around the world. For language matters. It crafts history. If lived experiences accumulate like silt on riverbanks, The so formed clay is shaped by language and hardened by time. History is constructed by human hands. It matters which palms, eyes, and spirits do the sculpting. One Western Colorado town, for example, currently has a brochure on its website. Attached to the historical information section, which reads, with the departure of the Ute Indians, a resilient bunch of settlers and entrepreneurs took up residency in the new town. Words can wield violence, too, and feardo Anstein has no patience for euphemisms. When Pedre, the sleepy prophet's grandson, Simo de husband, is walking through a bustling fairground for the first time in his life, soon after Anglos have expanded across their valley, the suffocating knot that feardo Anstein has been trying to unravel is pulled taut. It was in that moment that Pedre realized he had entered the strange world of Anglo myth, she writes. Pedre came from storytelling people, but as he passed a big top devoted to the reenactment of Custer's Last Stand, he couldn't help but think that Anglos were perhaps the most dangerous storytellers of all, for they believed only their own words, and they allowed their stories to trample the truths of nearly every other man on earth. Email the author with comments at eAthena at BoulderWeekly.com. Rainbow Celebrating Judy Garland's Centenary by Michael J. Casey It didn't take long for Judy Garland to get started. Born Frances Ethel Gum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota on June 10, 1922, Garland strode into the vaudeville stage with her sisters in 1924, solidifying her future as an entertainer. In 34, the trio adopted the stage name, The Garland Sisters, and in 37, young Judy sang a song to a portrait of Clark Gable in MGM's Broadway Melody of 1938, and became an overnight success. The Tiffany Studio had signed Garland to a contract only two years prior. Her screen debut was Pigskin Parade, and two years after Broadway Melody, Garland would step into those iconic ruby slippers for a movie with no equal. The Wizard of Oz. Garland was a teenager when she filmed Oz, playing Dorothy Gale as a young girl caught between childlike innocence and adolescent yearning. Just listen to her contralto voice quiver as she delivers over the rainbow. Hardly anyone watching Oz in 39 knew the life Garland was leading and would continue to lead backstage, but they could feel it. When Garland sings, you feel everything. But as legendary as the backstage tales and gossip are, what continues to entrance audiences is the magic Garland captured on screen. Which is why both TCM and the Criterion Channel are celebrating Garland's centenary all June long. For those with TCM in their cable package, Garland is June's Star of the Month, with 31 of her films showing Friday nights starting June 3rd. Oz is on the schedule June 10th as is Pigskin Parade and Broadway Melody of 1938, both June 3rd. The same night you can catch Garland's successful series of Girl Next Door pictures, co-starring Mickey Rooney. For you streamers out there, the Criterion Channel's Garland celebration features 13 of her signature performances, including a personal favorite, 1948's The Pirate, starring Garland alongside Gene Kelly, the second of their three pairings. The whole picture is a hoot, but the scene where Garland's Manuela learns that Kelly's Macoco is a phony is one of the best destroy-every-last-thing-in-the-room fits of rage captured on celluloid, this side of Citizen Kane. She could sing, she could act, she could dance, and she could scat. She could break your heart with a chord and lift your soul with a smile. Some stars fade, but Garland's never will. On the Bowery and while you're on the Criterion channel, why not give something completely different a try? Shot in stark black and white, like a moving Ouija photograph. Lionel Rogosin's On the Bowery is a stunning piece of filmmaking, instrumental in drop-kicking American moviemaking out of the studios and onto the streets. The story here is of an alcoholic, Ray Salier, down on New York's Skid Row. It's partly scripted, but totally authentic the bridge between documentary and neorealism. And it's terrifying in its frankness. How Rogozin got the camera into these areas is a stroke of genius. How he depicts these derelicts is a stroke of grace. It's not a movie that gets enough praise, but thanks to a restoration in 2006 by L'Imagine Retropata and a subsequent home video release by Milestone Films, On the Bowery continues to reach new audiences, and the timing couldn't be better for more to discover it on the Criterion channel as a new generation of Americans grapples with another homelessness crisis brought on by substance abuse. For more movie reviews, tune into After Image Fridays at 3 p.m. on KGNU, 88.5 FM, and online at KGNU.org. Email questions or comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. Meet the Future. Cultured, fermented, and 3D printed foods are almost on the table, but will dinner still taste good? By John Lendorf. As the brilliant comedian and social commentator George Carlin once wisely said, the future will soon be a thing of the past. In the world of food, dining, farming, and grocery shopping, the future isn't waiting its turn. Companies are fabricating entrees that are cell-cultured or fermented, 3D printed and constructed from pea protein, banana peels, or seaweed. Facial recognition software is invading the supermarket aisles. Electric chopsticks promise to make food delivered by drones taste better. Here is a glimpse into the futuristic meals and technology that will change how we cook, dine, eat, and shop in the next decade. Take a bite of the metaverse. Israeli company Future Meat plans on having its cell-cultured meat on U.S. shelves this year. Juice Chain Pressed is offering animal-free egg white protein made by every company using fermentation to replicate animal protein. Colorado-based Meaty Foods is introducing an alternative steak product made almost entirely of mycelium, or mushroom, roots. London's Simplicity Foods is turning mushrooms and miso into plant-based meats using a fermentation process. Austria's Archeon Biotechnologies is using fermentation to transform captured carbon dioxide into proteins. Umaro Foods is making plant-based bacon from seaweed. Israeli startup Plantish is using 3D printing technology to create plant-based fillets that look and taste like salmon. Baltimore's Muji Meats is using 3D printing for plant-based meats that creates whole cuts of vegan meat. General Mills' new alternative dairy cream cheese is made from pea and dairy proteins using microbial fermentation technology. First law of robotics, make coffee. A Cambridge University research robot is capable of tasting salt and other ingredients in a recipe and adding more as needed. Japanese researchers have created a set of electrical chopsticks that create a salty taste in the user's mouth. Under development, a TV screen you lick and taste a range of food flavors. Spoon Tech is developing a smart spoon that uses an electric current to stimulate the taste buds and make food taste better. Panera Bread is testing the Cook Right coffee system a robotic coffee maker using artificial intelligence to monitor coffee volume and temperature using predictive analytics. Betty bought robots are bringing orders to restaurant tables at the Marriott Fort Lauderdale Airport while a robot at the AC Hotel Miami Dadeland delivers food from several restaurants to rooms. Robot servers at Robotasia in the English town of Milton Keynes have humans assigned to deal with glitches like the robot's tendency to malfunction when near people wearing heavy metal jewelry. Kana Technology has introduced the world's first molecular beverage printer using concentrated ingredients to mix more than 100 cocktail varieties at home. Here comes the ice cream drone. Residents of Canberra, Australia can order more than 250 of Coles Supermarket's most popular grocery items by on-demand drone delivery service. The drone hovers and lowers the package to the ground. DroneUp is providing drone delivery from 34 Walmart locations in six states, including Arizona. The top selling drone delivered item at one of these stores is Hamburger Helper. Seriously. Scary food tech on aisle nine. UK supermarkets are working on using AI age-estimating technology that checks the faces of customers buying alcohol. A recent survey from Pipslay shows 69% of customers believe grocers should inform shoppers when facial recognition is in use. Philadelphia Cream Cheese installed a device to diffuse the smell of freshly based cheesecake into the dairy aisle. Instacart has announced it will cover tips that customers pull back after their orders are delivered, an offense known as tip-baiting. Minnesota-based company Recombinitics is set to sell beef from cows whose genes have been altered through CRISPR technology to tolerate hot weather. Growing veggies on the ocean floor, The startup Nemo's Garden was founded in 2021 to prove that herbs, fruit, and vegetables can be grown in a seafloor biosphere greenhouse. Calera has opened a new automated indoor 90,000 square foot vertical farming facility in Colorado. Pepsi has created a limited run of cola-infused pepperoni to be served at pizzerias in select cities. No one is sure why. Invest in cauliflower futures. Applegate's well-carved line of burger patties and meatballs have cauliflower and kale mixed in. Purdue's Chicken Plus Nuggets combine chicken with chickpeas and cauliflower. Using Bitcoin in Metaverse Restaurants Choco Mate Restaurants in London, Miami, and Toronto serve a cocktail that can be paid for only with Bitcoin. New Bitcoin-enabled kiosks from Coinstar aim to give grocery shoppers easy access to digital currency. Shake Shack is testing a program that rewards customers in Bitcoin when they use the company's cash card. Chipotle has debuted its virtual restaurant in the Metaverse on Roblox. Wendy's unveiled the Wendyverse recently. McDonald's has filed a trademark for future Metaverse eatery. Recycling Waste in a Tasteful Way Portland, Oregon-based Wayward Spirit Distillery is turning whey, the waste liquid left after making cheese for milk, into award-winning spirits. Netherlands' banana business is making a pulled pork substitute using banana peels. Kraft Heinz is working with Pulpex to develop a recyclable paper-based ketchup bottle. Major Supermarkets is working with Dow Chemical Company to turn plastic shopping bags into pavement for parking lots. UK supermarket chain Morrisons has eliminated use-by dates from 90% of its milk products and is advising shoppers to use the sniff test to gauge freshness. Los Angeles now requires restaurants with 26 or more employees to remove single-use utensils and napkin dispensers and only include the items in takeout orders when requested. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles, Thursdays on KGNU. Listen to podcasts at news.kgnu.org. Email questions or comments to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. A different sort of relaxation. Soak in a mash bill while you sip it at the beer spa. By Matt Mainpaw. For once, I went to Denver and came home smelling like a brewery on purpose. That sentence sprang fully formed in my mind when I got an email inviting me to check out the beer spa in Denver's Five Points neighborhood. A spa soak in a tub full of beer was all I could imagine. Like many seasoned drinkers, I've had my fair share of spills in crowded bars. As a bartender, I've had tap lines, spray me, and kegs foam over. One fateful mash day at the distillery, I was coated in an oatmeal-like rye mash, so sticky I had to get in the shower with my clothes on to avoid accidentally waxing my entire body. Though I look back at these moments with a sort of wry amusement, I never thought about voluntarily soaking myself in the stuff that beer is made from. I love a nice hot soak, or a hot tub with some cocktails or a few beers. Editor's note, mind your alcohol consumption in hot tubs, folks. While I was admittedly skeptical about soaking in beer, it was too interesting and different to pass over. I thought I knew what to expect walking through the doors that day, but I walked back out genuinely impressed. Let's take a step back to look at how a beer-focused day spa landed in Five Points. Founded by entrepreneurial couple Jessica French and Damien Zouawi, the Beer Spa is a culmination of more than a year of global travel as the married couple explored Europe and Asia. The goal, French says, was to look at unique business concepts that hadn't made their way to the U.S. yet. We're both very entrepreneurial, so we had this drive to work for ourselves, French says. It became pretty apparent to us that we wanted to do something different, not just open a restaurant or coffee shop. While traveling, it also became apparent that they were still very interested in businesses involving hospitality and wellness, Zuawi says. The true moment of inspiration came from a rainy afternoon in a Polish mountain town, where a beer spa offered shelter from precipitous weather. Sipping pints while soaking in a warm tub, the smell of beer all around them, led the pair to a conversation about bathing traditions and bringing them back to the U.S. Zuawi and French found a renewed focus for their travels, studying spa, wellness concepts, and bathing culture to bring the best ideas back home with them. They wanted to combine the joy they found in the Polish beer spa with wellness practices in other cultures, like saunas and Japanese onsen. The wellness industry in the U.S. is very different than in other countries, Zuawi says. I think with the pandemic, people realized that need for balance between work and life and how important it is to take care of yourself. All that was left was finding the first location for their concept. With beer in mind, French and Zuawi chose Denver and made it home. Construction began on a building in Denver at 30th Avenue and Downing Street, and the beer spa was officially born. When I spoke with French and Zuawi ahead of my appointment, they assured me I wouldn't actually be soaking in beer. The only actual beer at the beer spa is for consumption. Instead, French compares it to herbal baths, hydrotherapy, and aromatherapy, citing the beneficial nutrients found in barley and hops. It's essentially a giant tea bag added to the soaking tub, making it more like wort, the pre-fermentation proto-beer. On the day I brought one of my good friends with me for company and the two of us enthusiastically committed to our beer-centered wellness routine. The staff were warm and gracious, helping us with a flight of tasters from the self-service tap wall. The beer spa partners with a new Colorado brewery each month, featuring their beers in the tasting room, and utilizing their varieties of hops and barley in the spa itself. Beers in hand, in insulated tumblers to prevent broken glass in the tub, we were shown to our soaking room and given a brief tutorial. Each room has a sliding door for privacy and guests can enjoy the relaxation either naked or in a bathing suit at their own comfort level. As close as we are, my buddy and I opted for swim trunks. Each room has a two-person infrared sauna all the heat with none of the steam and a rain shower to sweat out any toxins before getting in your beer soak. The soaking tub holds two but it is certainly an intimate experience. Neither my friend or I are particularly small humans, but we're both plenty comfortable for the hour we were there. It was a genuinely lovely experience, dear readers. The temperature in the tub was just warmer than the human body, so it lacked the sensation of being slowly cooked alive that I associate with hot tubs and hot springs. I confess, I didn't actually smell like wort, but the aroma was very pleasant. The featured brewery was Cerveceria, Colorado, so I enjoyed a pint of their Mexican lager while I relaxed. More than just for visitors or special occasions, I can see myself heading back to the beer spa. The tension drained from me and my muscles felt eased, at least until I had to get back on I-25 North. Send questions or comments to mattmainpaw at gmail.com. Smelly Business Cannabis grow-ops might stink like pollution, but state research suggests we're just smelling things, by Will Brenza. If you're in the vicinity of a commercial cannabis grow, you'll smell it long before you see it. From a car, from the street, even from blocks away, the dank and potent aroma of flowering cannabis is sharp, unmistakable, and unignorable, especially when it's being grown at near-industrial scale. What your nose is picking up on are called terpenes. These chemical compounds are naturally occurring in plants and are responsible for their specific aromas, flavors, and sometimes their colors. Limonene is found in lemons, pinene is found in pine trees, and cariofilene is in rosemary, cloves, and hops. Cannabis has 400 known terpenes, and throughout nature, scientists have discovered more than 20,000 of them. But terpenes aren't just fragrant organic compounds. They're also volatile organic compounds, VOCs, meaning they react with nitrogen oxide in the air to create ozone, a greenhouse gas that absorbs both ultraviolet and infrared radiation, significantly contributing to rising temperatures. VOCs like isoprene, another terpene, create more ozone than others and could be detrimental to our atmosphere if generated on a large enough scale leaving many to wonder, how much VOC pollution does Colorado's commercial cannabis industry generate? And is that contributing to ozone production in our atmosphere? Caitlin Erso, the small business consultant for the Colorado Department of Health and Environment CDPHE, says the CDPHE gets odor complaints about cultivation facilities all the time. And if the pungency of Colorado's grow ops is any indicator of their ozone contributions, the state could be dealing with a serious pollution problem, one that Urso points out wouldn't be subject to the same air quality permitting requirements as other businesses. They're agriculturally exempt, Urso says, meaning that, like farmers and ranchers, cannabis cultivators don't need VOC emissions permits. So it was definitely an unanswered question. What is the impact that cannabis cultivation facilities have on air quality? So, URSO, alongside a team of researchers from the CDPHE and the Colorado Air Quality Control Division, AQCD, set out to answer that question. They designed a study sampling VOC exhaust from three medium and large-scale cannabis cultivation facilities in Denver, two producing less than 100,000 harvested plants per year, and one producing less than 20,000. Using a technique called photochemical air quality monitoring, the researchers assessed how impactful POTS VOCs are on ozone production in this state. And the conclusions they came to were totally unexpected according to Erso. They found that, despite the dank odor that hangs heavy on the air surrounding these facilities, and despite the massive terpene content of their crops, the VOC emissions rate for the sampled cultivation facilities was extremely low. The dominant terpenes they detected were karyophyllene, limonene, Terpinoline, pinene, and myrcene, respectively, by concentration, the study notes. The emissions exhaust also appeared to lack isoprene, a very reactive terpene VOC emitted from many other plants, that has a particular knack for generating ozone at high rates. In total, the cultivation of 2,000 pounds of cannabis only resulted in 11 pounds of VOCs emitted from the sample. To put that into perspective, within the Denver metro area, the threshold past which a business needs an air quality permit is 2,000 pounds of VOC emissions annually. That would require a cultivator to produce 726,000 pounds of cannabis in a single year, over a third of Colorado's entire state cannabis crop yield for 2021. The three facilities' VOC emissions sampled in this study by CDPHE were so low that the resulting increase in ozone was just 0.005 to 0.009 percent. I didn't expect the sky to be falling emissions-wise, but I just didn't expect them to be so low, Urso says. She expected a full percentage point of change in ozone at least. The fact that there's only 11 pounds of VOCs associated with that much cannabis is shocking. Small businesses like auto body paint shops and dry cleaners often exceed that 2,000 pound threshold for VOC emissions, Urso points out. It's almost unheard of for production facilities of this size to emit such small quantities of VOCs across almost any industry. So, we know that cannabis cultivation facilities are very odorous, but are they actually emitting pollutants? Urso asks. The answer that we found is essentially no. I mean it's a very very low VOC concentration for a very high odor profile. What that tells us, she says, is that our noses are biologically tuned in to sniffing out terpenes. Maybe that's because Homo sapiens have evolved across eons to detect the dankest dank from blocks away. Or perhaps more likely, it's because terpenes are often associated with food and our ancestors were hungry to survive. Either way, The odor that surrounds cultivation facilities isn't pollution, it's just your brain telling you that there's something good growing over there. What we found is that the odor is a nuisance for some people. It's not a threat to public health or the environment, Urso says. It was great news. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better surprise. Email questions or comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. A safe space to fashion identity. Slay the Runway offers Boulder County teens an opportunity to design clothing and explore self-expression by Matt Mainpah. Elaine Waterman was teaching a youth fashion design class a few years ago when she took note of a trans student enjoying the work and realized there wasn't a fashion program specifically designed for LGBTQ youth in Boulder County. From the experience of being able to create in a space that was free and open, I realized there was a need for that in the LGBTQ plus community," says Waterman, executive director of the Firehouse Art Center in Longmont. An idea began to germinate, but it wouldn't sprout until Waterman eventually met Stephen Frost, a textile artist and associate chair of CU Boulder's Department of Media Studies. The two originally intended to collaborate on a project that didn't pan out, Waterman says but they kept in touch in hopes of finding something to do together. For Frost, who uses they-them pronouns, the idea came from an experience seeing an LGBTQ plus youth camp in Maine, something they never had as a team. Though the original project never coalesced, Frost and Waterman would go on to brainstorm, slay the runway. Using their experience as artists and educators, the plan was to create a fashion design workshop where LGBTQ teens could explore self-expression with support and guidance. Concerns with the pandemic shifted the schedule for the first year of the program, leading to the sessions split over eight weeks in the fall of 2021 instead of the intended summer workshop. Some teens walked in knowing almost nothing about sewing that first year, Waterman explains but quickly rose to the challenge. Beyond learning practical skills and flexing their creative muscles, giving LGBTQ plus teens the opportunity to explore the intersection between identity and appearance is the main drive. They all designed multiple looks, with one young designer creating moving wings using three D printers courtesy of the Boulder Public Library's makerspace, BLDG sixty one. Creating a safe space for exploration is a personal choice for Waterman, whose youngest child identifies as non-binary they-them. Her kid was one of the designers and models during the first year of the program, and Waterman says, though they were initially apprehensive about joining, they enjoyed the process so much they created three looks for the final performance. For me, fashion has always been about self-expression, Waterman says. It doesn't have to do with sexuality, it has to do with how you express yourself and how you see yourself. I think children are very aware of that. Some might be younger, others might take more time. Having a safe, supportive environment for the teens also helped open dialogue with parents, Waterman says. The workshop culminated in what she calls the Caregivers Conference, a virtual panel discussion with members of the arts and LGBTQ+ communities in Boulder County, including Out Boulder County and Boulder County Public Health's Open and Affirming Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Support (OASOS). Not only was the program about giving these kids a chance to create, It was also an opportunity for families to delve into how to bring that celebratory space home, Waterman explains. The feedback from parents and families was positive, especially when it came to learning the language surrounding gender and sexual identity. Waterman plans on bringing the caregiver conference component back in some form, though the details haven't been stitched together yet. Waterman says she's glad that this year's Slay the Runway can be the summer workshop she and Frost initially envisioned. Open to Colorado teens ages 13 to 18, designers will spend time planning their looks on paper, selecting materials and learning the requisite skills to make a design a reality. Waterman wants the students to work on simplicity in their designs this year, hoping to encourage them toward at least one outfit they can wear outside the catwalk. Slay the Runway is free for all aspiring designers with costs for each student covered with support from OASOS and Boulder Public Library. The eight-day workshop culminates in a professional runway show in CU Boulder's Atlas Theater, complete with a DJ, MCs, and professional lighting. The show last year was just amazing, Waterman says. It was a great experience for the kids because it brought what they designed and wore to a whole other level. Applicants for Slay the Runway are due by June 20th, and there are plenty of spaces available for students to sign up. Waterman adds, emphasizing that allies and LGBTQ plus peoples are welcome. Her hope is that some teens who may not have the sort of support they need at home will find the program as well. Details, details. Slay the Runway creating safe spaces for LGBTQ youth expression, June 28th to July 8th, multiple locations. Email info at firehouseart.org for application. Send comments or questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. And my name is O'Reilly.
1: Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the June second, two 2022, Thursday's reading of the Boulder Daily Camera, the Longmont Times Call, and the Colorado Daily. My name is Nicola Fordwood. Today, we will be reading the following main articles from the Daily Camera. Second lawsuit dismissed. Written by Deborah Swearingen. One in custody after fatal crash, pursuit in allegedly stolen vehicle. Written by Mitchell Byers. Lasp helps build NASA tool. Written by Annie Mel. GOP candidates low ticket sales force cancellation of forum. Written by Matthew Bennett and following up with miscellaneous articles. The following main articles from the Longmont Times call Hospitalizations Up! New Cases Rising Written by Meg Wingerter. Cyclists Asked to Ride Safely for Longmont's Bike Month Written by Andrew Pickney Hinkley to Get Full Freedom Written by Jessica Gresco. VFW Post 2601, slated to open Longmont Building in July, written by Kelsey Hammond, and following up with miscellaneous articles. We will be finishing up today's reading with miscellaneous articles from the Colorado Daily. From the Daily Camera, Boulder County Debris Removal, Second Lawsuit Dismissed, written by Deborah Swearingen. A district court judge has dismissed a lawsuit filed by Ceres Environmental Services, one of the companies that wasn't selected for Boulder County's post-Marshall Fire Debris Removal Program. Naturally, we are pleased by this ruling, Boulder County Public Works Director Jeff Maxwell stated in his news release. We hope the court's decision brings an end to the misguided efforts to stop the progress of the private property debris removal program allowing our staff to remain squarely focused on accomplishing the challenging and important work of Marshall Fire cleanup. The Florida contractor, which did not respond to a request for comment, in early April sued the county, and the Boulder County commissioners alleging the bidding process that had been conducted a couple of months earlier was shrouded in secrecy and misrepresentations. The company asked the court to invalidate the bid. Boulder County then asked for the lawsuit to be dismissed. In order to withstand the county's motion to dismiss, however, Sarah's must have suffered an injury, in fact, and have a legally protected interest, the May 26 order states. An injury, in fact, indicates a real or threatened injury, including infringement on a protected interest. To that end, Sarah's argued, it suffered such an injury given that its ranking was the product of a corrupt, unlawful, or unfair process. According to information previously provided by Boulder County, Serres ranked third out of 11 companies competing for the contract. The company was not one of the two selected to be interviewed by the selection committee because of the sc- scoring gap between the Serres proposal and the two, forms, two firms selected for an interview. Out of a total possible score of 100, Sarah's received a score of 68, while the other two firms received scores of 84 and 91. While Sarah's argued it should have been ranked higher, Judge Kenneth Plotz disagreed with that assertion. Sarah's alleged injuries are speculative, and it cannot reasonably be concluded that Sarah's would have obtained the award, Plotz determined. Before taking legal action, Sarah's appealed the bid decision to county commissioners, but the appeal appeal was denied. Boulder County's private property debris removal program has been underway since mid-April. It continued while the lawsuit proceeded. According to the county, the selected contractor, DRC, Emergency Services, is currently working on more than 300 properties in Louisville, Superior, and unincorporated Boulder County with more than 65 approaching completion. The commissioners on March 22nd officially approved the $60 million contract with DRC and okayed the intergovernmental agreement that requires Superior and Louisville to reimburse Boulder County for the costs of private property debu- debris removal not covered by the state or by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. FEMA is reimbursing 90% of the eligible project costs, with the state and local jurisdictions paying 5% each. This is not the first time Boulder County's debris removal program has overcome legal hurdles. Another lawsuit questioning the debris removal contract was brought earlier this year by former FEMA director Michael Brown and his group, demanding integrity in government spending. That lawsuit accused the county of violating open meeting laws during the bidding process. Visiting Judge Stephen Howard determined that Brown, who does not live in Boulder County and could not provide injury related to the award of the contract to DRC, had no standing to sue and dismiss the case in late March. A nonprofit organization made largely of residents who survived what's now the state's most destructive wildfire opposed both lawsuits by by filing official motions to intervene. The group argued that both would delay cleanup, and that any delay would further emotional and financial hardship for people whose homes were lost or damaged in the Marshall Fire. Even without any delay caused by this lawsuit, many fire survivors will struggle to complete a rebuild of their homes within the 12 or 24 months of additional living expense coverage that they have. The group's most recent motion states, but with a delay, many fire survivors would not be able to pay both rent, now greatly inflated after the disaster, and their mortgage if they run out of additional living expense coverage. One in custody after a fatal crash, pursuit in allegedly stolen vehicle. Investigators believe intoxication was factor in crash. Written by Mitchell Byers One woman is in custody after reportedly fleeing the scene of a fatal crash in a stolen vehicle and leading police on a chase into Boulder. The incident started when Boulder County deputies were called to a head-on collision at 68th Street and South Boulder Road at 11.30 a.m. Wednesday. Trooper Josh Lewis with the Colorado State Patrol said one person was confirmed dead on scene Lewis said the other driver involved in the crash then got out of her vehicle and stole a white SUV on the scene and fled the area. A passenger in the woman's vehicle was left at the scene with serious injuries. The driver evaded officers before eventually heading into the city of Boulder on Arapahoe Avenue in a white SUV at a high rate of speed, and Lewis said she did reportedly get into another small—in other smaller crashes during the pursuit— boulder police spokeswoman diane wa said one attempt to stop a vehicle with stop sticks led to the suspect hitting another vehicle while avoiding capture the driver of that car was not injured while said the driver went through at least two red lights before finally turning into a parking lot near 28th street on arapaho avenue where officers were able to position their vehicles to pin the suv in the woman was taken into custody and is being treated for minor injuries before facing possible arrest. The name of the person killed in the initial crash has not yet been identified, and Lewis said the cause of that crash is still under investigation. However, Lewis said intoxication on the part of the driver who fled the scene is believed to be a factor at this time. The age of the woman arrested and the age and gender of the person who was killed have not been released. The Colorado State Patrol will be investigating the initial crash on South Boulder Road, while Boulder Police will be investigating any further incidents that occurred during the pursuit. Anyone who has any information about the incidents that occurred within Boulder City limits is asked to call the Non-Emergency Dispatch Line at 441-3333. University of Colorado Boulder LASP helps build NASA Tool. $40 million space mission instrument will track how space weather affects Earth. Written by Annie Mell. Over the next